Welcome to the New Books Network. You're a very bad man, Walker, a very destructive man. Why do you run around doing things like this? What do you want? I want my money. I want my 93 grand. $93,000? You threaten a financial structure like this for $93,000? No, Walker, I don't believe you. What do you really want? I, I really want my money. I want my money. Well, I'm not going to give you any money, and nobody else is. Don't you understand that? Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. I'm Eric. And we are thrilled to be here today on 15-Minute Film Fanatics with Eric Wilson to talk about Point Blank. So Eric is the Thomas H. Pritchard Professor of English at Wake Forest University, where he teaches British and American Romanticism, film and literature, and creative nonfiction. And Eric has just written a new book in the BFI Film Classic series about Point Blank. It's a terrific book about a terrific movie. And you can actually hear my interview with Eric on the New Books Network, and we'll drop a link to that in the description. So today, Eric has joined us for 15-Minute Film Fanatics. He knows the show. He knows that he knows the way it works. And he knows that in part one, we always talk about our overall take on the film, what is it this time that grabbed us? Now, the cool thing about today's episode is that Eric has seen it, you know, upwards of 30 times. I've seen it maybe four or five times. And Mike just saw it for the podcast. So this is, we have everyone represented here. So Eric, why don't you start us off? What is it overall about Point Blank that you love? I think it's its striking mix of what are generally disparate elements. On the one hand, you have high pulp. Uh, this is a film that draws on the conventions of Film noir, I would more say it's neo-noir. You have a hyper-violent world, you have treacherous women, you have a broken character trying to find meaning, you have haunting cityscapes. That's all there. Um, and in this regard, it's in conversation with a film like, say, Chinatown, which comes out a bit later. But also you have in this film, the conventions of the Spaghetti Western. You have these wide open cityscapes, which look like desert plains in some cases. You have the single man in search of revenge for, for some deep wrong. You have the, the laconic dialogue, you, like you might have in a, in a Leone film. But in addition to these pulpier elements, there is a high avant-garde style going on. Uh, Borman was also influenced by a Truffaut or a René or a Godard. So you have in this film... Uh, these highly compelling stylistic techniques, there's a gusto to it. You have flashbacks, you have crosscuts, you have fragmentation of time. Um, it's as if Sergio Leone met Francois Truffaut. That's there too. But then there's a third element that ultimately draws me in the most, and that is the psychological depth of the film. You rarely see such a mix of stylistic virtuosity that is so shimmery on a surface level and the psychological depth. You have this man who's been traumatized, he's been betrayed by his wife, betrayed by his best friend, and he's trying to get his humanity back. And the film is really this sort of these competing narratives between his Terminator-esque um, linear desire for revenge and these little quiet moments with the character played by Angie Dickinson, who's sort of trying to call him back to some humanity. So the, the film that I would liken it most to from closer to our generation is Tarantino's Kill Bill, which is also this mishmash of, of genre and, and stylistic virtuosity, but 
kiddo Beatrix Kiddo, the Uma Thurman character, by the end, when she's lying on the floor of that hotel, holding the lion crying, that's one of the most moving scenes I've ever seen in my life. So Tarantino was able to, to bring these disparate elements together. Yeah, it could it could stand on its own just as a great noir revenge movie you don't, without all the trauma stuff we'll talk about that you talk about in your book about this guy trying to become whole again. Even if it was just filmed as a as a cheesy, you know, cheesy is the wrong word, but a straight noir movie, it would still be totally entertaining. Yeah, that's right. And 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 it it works on that level. You, yeah. you, can, you can cut the fancy stuff out if you want to <laughs> and, and and very much enjoy it like 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 a like a straight up uh, two fisted. Uh, hyper violent, stylistically interesting noir. I would call it not so much film noir as film blanc, uh, because because it is very much about the yeah. blind white of Los Angeles, and it works in that film like like the like the shadows might work in and Howard Hawks's say the big sleep. Yeah. So, Mike, what was your overall take on it? Uh, my favorite thing about the movie is how Carol O'Connor calls Los Angeles Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> I think it's Los Angeles forever now. Uh, I, I got very caught up in the in the revenge narrative. Uh, I'm a Donald E. Westlake reader, so I was I love the source material. I wasn't ready for somebody to break away the sound of feet walking until until you're forced to think this is the sound of feet walking. You know, uh, endless hallways. Where are they all going? And of course, I I think that you get outside of the bigger the bigger schema there's a way of making this corny which is um if park if he's walking down the hallway with uh with a hundred other people that are on their daily commute there's some kind of um strange juxtaposition like everybody that does business in america is a killer mm -hmm. uh but this is very different I, I think that they actually avoid a lot of corniness um by showing the the blank landscape uh, of the city because the, the city is full of people and somehow not like when he's um, when he's waiting for his ex-wife to go up the stairs into her apartment alone. There's also nobody else on that stair. Like she lives in some kind of apartment complex, but there's no there's nobody else. There's no juxtaposition. There's no other thing that you can see the scene in reference to. Um, and I wanted there to be. And I thought a lot about that. It, it almost distracted me from the movie, how much I wanted other people to be in the hallway or or other bystanders to walk around. And then you look at the cast list, the cat, like, I think I've had parties at my house that have more people than we're actually in this film. <laughs> and I, I didn't notice that until the end that there's really only eight or nine people in this entire movie. Now there's scenes, you know, that take place in, in bars or whatever, but it, the, the scenes, the scenes that involve other people or background extras are, I think, specifically shot in such a way that the people are actually the background so there's psychological depth but i think that a lot of the psychological depth has uh or draws its power from a lack of focus on on anything else like you, you when he turns on when he's ignoring her and he just turns on the tv you can't even really follow what's on the tv you know for you, you can't place yourself and i think that other people uh the backgrounds of movies have a calming effect they allow us to place ourselves and i think that that very strategically those elements are drawn out of this film so that you only can focus on what's there. And I, I think if not for Carol O'Connor, I might have actually like itched through the last 30 minutes of this movie. Yeah. Well, there are no other people, right? As, as far as Walker's concerned, there's, there's, there's a briefcase. And of course it has to be in a briefcase. We just know that from watching movies full of $93,000. You know, I want to go back to what Mike said before and what about, about 
about the source material and what Eric said about the psychological depth. So my take on this, and this is funny that we're talking about this today, Mike, because Mike years ago turned me on to The Hunter. We're just talking about books and Mike says, do you ever read The Hunter? That's a great crime book. And I'm like, no, I never read it. So I got it. And then like, I always do in my enthusiasms, I just became a, a, a maniac and then started telling everybody else, you got to read these books by Richard Stark, who of course is, is Donald D. Westlake. So the first time that I watched this film, I was so ready. I had never seen it by accident. Lovely Marvin. I know the professionals. I know the man who shot Liberty Valance, the Dirty Dozen. And I'm like, oh, he's the perfect guy to play Parker. Like, this is going to be great. Now, of course, in the movie, he's called Walker. And I found out it's because when Westlake sold the rights, he said, you can have the book, but you can't have the name. Like, he's, I get to own the name <laughs> part. So they, they come up with Walker, right? So I sat down to watch it. And it, it worked, but it, there were things about it that were different to me the first time I saw it, right? So in the book, you know, he doesn't he doesn't throw Mal off of the roof or he doesn't slip off the roof, you know, naked from the sheet. He strangles him. And he's he's a couple other things happen differently. And all of Lee Marvin's vulnerability was something I wasn't really ready for yet. And then I watched it again and eventually it came around. And I, and especially after reading your book, Eric, is that you start to think about what would happen if Parker watched this movie? If Parker from the novel watched Walker in the film of it, he might say, well, that was right. That, what's he doing? What's he dropping all the stuff in the bathtub for? Like, what's going on with that? <laughs> yeah, he he would. I mean, I, if I recall in the, in, in the, in the novel, um, after uh, Parker's wife dies in, in the apartment, he he cuts her face up and buries yeah. her in Central Park, uh, yes. so no one will assume that he's had anything to do with the, the crime okay. at all. Um, I don't think he would make it through the film. I th he he likes to drink pretty heavily in those novels. He'd probably be throwing back some vodka. Uh, I wanted I thought what Mike said was interesting. This 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 kind of tension in the film between um, you know solitary characters and and crowds. I mean you're right, Mike. When when Marvin is on his revenge hunt, you rarely see more than three people in in a given frame. I think four might be the most. Whereas in the flashbacks, you see crowds. Uh, you see the big crowd at the party where he meets Maligan. It seemingly it's a military reunion. Or you see when he first meets his wife, Lynn, um, on this dock with all these other people around. So I think the singularity of, of, of Walker and, and the characters around him is, is a way of sort of emphasizing the dreamlike quality of the film. When, when Lynn is walking up her apartment steps, it looks like she's sleepwalking. I liken it to a scene out of my, you know, Maya Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon. There's something very somnambulistic about her. And so I, you can see why people would say, oh, is this film really happening or, or is it a dream? Uh, of course, Borman, I think, rather wonderfully said, it doesn't matter. It is what you see on the screen. He was willing to leave that ambiguity there. Right. There's well, also the way that you say Los Angeles, the way that the city looks, right, is like a dream because every 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 part of the film is in a different color. Like there's the part where he's got the yellow on and he, and he cranks around the viewfinder to see things and all the green in, in the one room with the with the organization folks. So there's definitely something surreal about that, too. Well, the, the, yeah, every scene has a, has a color scheme, and that's one reason why uh, the producer of the film wanted to fire Borm, and he said, you can't film all the scenes in one color. Of course, it turns out they look rather beautiful because of emulsion. Um, thank goodness for Carol O'Connor, who comes at the end as this kind of like, like comic whirlwind and, and, and grounds the film in a kind of humanity in a way, or I should say traditional humanity, ordinariness. He's like, oh, Bill, the pool's cold. He's like, I'm worried about the water being cold. Walker doesn't care. Walker doesn't take baths or change clothes. He's just like appears. So it's interesting that that in the first scene of, of between uh, Carol O'Connor and Lee Marvin, O'Connor was dominating the scene. And, and Borman had to go back and recut some scenes to give Marvin more power in that. Um, I, I think I'm just happy Carol O'Connor comes. And, and I, I think I'd like to see a spinoff, um, <laughs> like a prestige TV show about Brewster. <laughs> No, I, I agree. I think yeah. I think 
what really strikes me is Brewster is a man who knows what to do with ninety three thousand dollars, mm-hmm. right? You you buy a pool, you have nice stuff. Walker has no cigar. he has yeah. no idea, right? He put he takes the cigar out of the desk and shows him. Right. He has absolute Walker has absolutely no idea what to do with ninety three thousand dollars. He knows he has an invoice that says he's owed ninety three thousand mm-hmm. dollars, so he's trying to collect on it, but would have no idea what to do yeah. with it if he got it. Now I can buy that boat. <laughs> right exactly and it's funny what eric that was going to be my moment in part two but we can just talk about it now is, is when uh when carol o'connor feels the pool water and says it's ice cold bill and, <laughs> and, and it's ice cold bill and he's yes people do things they don't do it and the reason i love that moment so much is that it, it's just like the organization in this film which is called the outfit in the novels has the same problems everybody has in their day job like you tell somebody to do something they don't do it like you, you try to depend on people to get this report done for you by friday afternoon it, it's monday morning the thing's not done yet and that also as carol o'connor's walking into the house He's got to deal with this guy who's been on this murder spree who wants the money back, but he still stops to feel the pool water because it's like, yeah, I'll deal with Lee Marvin. And then yeah. maybe we'll go for a swim. Ah, then now the pool water's it's ice cold, Bill. Yeah. You have to live life. He's at gunpoint and he says, uh, there's, I have $11 in my pocket. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's weird to say this, but g- given how compelling Marvin is in his appearance and his mannerisms, he's Lee Marvin. Um, I, I think most of us are, are, are really you know, engrossed by him as an actor, but by the end with that character of Walker, I'm like, I'd rather hang out with uh, Archie Bunker for a little while because, because they're because of the kind of monotony to his behavior. It's like almost every scene with Angie Dickens and she's trying so hard and she's the sister of his dead wife. Her name is Chris. She's trying so hard to seduce him. Like, Hey man, there's something else in life other than $93,000. Let's, let's make love. Let's hang out. And, and he, and he he leans that way a little bit, but then he's always brought back to his revenge quest. She has to concuss him. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's right. right. Yes. She's the only person that gets a good lick on, on, on Walker with that pool cue. In the novels, Parker will only sleep with somebody after the job is done. That's kind of like his own code. So you can't, it's like in in Raging Bull when he pours the ice water down his pants. Like you can't get excited before the event. Welcome back. So in part two, of course, we always talk about our favorite scenes or the, the key scenes that embody the ideas of the film as a whole. So Eric, why don't you kick us off? Yes. So uh, Walker wants to seek revenge on Mal, who betrayed him, and he needs the help of his dead wife's sister, Chris, to help him do that. So they're out one day scoping out the hotel where Mal is staying. And there's this wonderful moment where Walker is right on right, right on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. It's gorgeous. And there's this bright yellow viewfinder you could put a quarter in and, and, and get a view. But he, he, he breaks the lock on it and turns it around the other direction so it can use it as a telescope for, for spying on Mal. And there's this wonderful kind of medium shot of him looking into that viewfinder, gorgeous yellow with the beautiful Pacific Ocean behind him. And you just get a sense, man, if you could give up this revenge quest for one minute, you could have an amazing afternoon with Angie Dickinson. Um, but right after that moment, he says to her, are you willing to go up into ho- Mal's hotel room and try to seduce him to help me get in to see him and kill him? And she says he makes my flesh crawl. Basically, he's willing to prostitute her to get what he wants. So that film is, is a kind of encapsulates the tension in the movie between Walker's dehumanizing revenge quest, which ironically he thinks will humanize him if he can get his money back. And then this other these these other opportunities in the movie for connection and love with Angie Dickinson that he keeps rejecting or blinding himself to. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. We talked in part one about the source material uh, and and Parker's mind versus Walker 
on screen. And I think it's I think it's easier or more possible to create a juxtaposition like that on film, obviously, because we on on the page, you only have the elements that you introduce. So you can't introduce anything incidentally, but you can do it in a movie. And so you can dramatize what monomania looks like uh, in a way that you can't on the page because the, the page is like is inherently monomaniacal. That's so funny you said monomania because this is another movie we had done Cutter's Way earlier. And Eric, I know you love Cutter's Way, but great, um, movie. great movie, right? But also like th that's funny to think about Walker as Ahab. <laughs> right. And I love you know, your comparison of Cutter as Ahab, by the way. That was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah. what you know, think about Eric, what do you think about that if you put it on the spot? Like Walker Ahab. Well, he he is he is an Ahabian figure right. in, in in that and and Angie Dickinson is kind of his Starbuck in a way. Yeah. She's trying to humanize him, saying, "Look, there are other options here." And Walker <laughs> considers them. Yeah, there are other options. However, so it it really shows the depth of his trauma in, in that he he's he really has lost the ability to connect. But more disturbingly, he's lost the ability to know he can no longer connect. Right? He really has become kind of a a Terminator type. And and that as 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 Ahab does, but in those moments when he when he does veer away and has like his conversations with Starbuck in in the symphony chapter, and that fear drops from Ahab into the water, and there are moments a little bit like that, but but all the time Walker's turning back after his white well, his ninety three thousand dollars, and he doesn't necessarily die at the end like Ahab, but certainly he is not even close to being fulfilled, um, and nor does he even get what he wants. Yeah, my, I, there's a moment that I love a lot, which is when he breaks in on Lynn's apartment and he shoots the bed and Mal's not there. So he goes in, he he remembers to check the bathroom because he might be hiding in the bathroom, maybe he heard me coming. So he starts smashing everything. And then the last thing he has is this green bottle of perfume and he almost half smells it. And you think he's he might put it back on the shelf and he just smashes it really, really for no reason. And it's almost, it's almost too much. It's like 2% too much. But uh, the film lets you know really early on in it that this is not going to be about anything else but smashing this. Like the, the central problem is you have a character who could not, even if he caught himself and that fit of rage was over, couldn't put things back on the shelf where they belong. They're going to end up crushed. Yeah, Bor Borman said that those scenes where you see the various shampoos and, and perfumes seeping in the bathtub it's a it's a kaleidoscopic psychedelic sort of effect he said that was lynn's life seeping away and i thought all right john borman i mean you're, i can see that i can see the the part of you that that directs uh, excalibur and zardoz in moments like that we don't need that overt symbolism so my moment at the end was, it comes at the end, it's when he's talking to Brewster and he's explaining to him, you know, like Mikey said, the $11 in my pocket, that's all I have. You don't understand how these things work. I love it. You're a very bad man. You're a very destructive man. You, know, you throw shampoo in the, in, the, in the bathtub. So he's scolding you for that. And Lee Marvin is on the couch and he just says that great line and he delivers it so well. He says, well, well, somebody's got to pay me. <laughs> and then Brewster just looks at him. And the first time you see the movie, you look at the screen and you're like, yeah, like that's right. Like somebody's got to pay me. And I think that's great because 
Walker's assumptions at that point are the same assumptions the viewer has that you think you know what this movie is, right? It's going to be even the marketing of the film, him with his big gun. I mean, it's called Point Blank of all things. It's Lee Marvin walking with the best clickety-clack shoes in movie history. You're like, okay, he's going to get the briefcase. And I know I keep saying it's insisting it's a briefcase, but I know it is. And it's the kind that goes, don't, don't. Because we've seen that in a million different movies that that comes up in Pulp Fiction, we know we know what he's got to get a briefcase, and then he says, "There's no briefcase," and then you sit there like, um, "Okay, now I've been watching movies my whole life, and I don't know what you're supposed to do when there's no briefcase." He goes, "Somebody's got to pay me," and I think the movie is great, like you said before. It keeps teasing you and thinking you know what it's going to be about and how it's going to work, and then it doesn't. And there's a million scenes like that in the movie. Well, you fit on Dan. The, what we ha haven't re yet referenced is that we kind of nodded toward is there are comic moments in this movie. And I mean, sometimes the comic moments come out of the, the hyperbole of the violence, like when Lee Marvin doesn't beat up a man, but destroys a car or when he shoots the phone instead of um, Carol O'Connor's character. But I, th I think we're kind of laughing at Walker's expense a little bit at the end. It's like, dude, I mean, don't, don't, don't you get it by now? And and we do kind of side with, with Carol O'Connor's like, you don't get it, do you? You just you just you just don't understand. So the the film is a, a bit satirical on that level, kind of satirizing the idea that men gain their worth by the amount of money they have. Now, certainly that's what the the members uh, of the organization think. Um, and you you'd assume that Walker, who in fighting against the organization, would not hold that same view, but he does. He he's kind of bought into their worldview of you only have value if you have money, and that makes the ending even more kind of heartbreaking that you, you realize finally well in working against the organization he's also been working for the organization without really knowing it well he's like he's like dr evil when he when he's holding the world ransom for one million dollars and he he only wants to the penny exactly what he's owed because he doesn't fit which is which is exactly what got him in trouble in the first place right he puts he puts his allegiance in things that you think that you can trust and ultimately that's where you fall. So, but so he has really no, he's got no situational awareness that other, that other characters have, right? I think that the political conniving of how the outfit works doesn't really occur to the Walker of the film, though it might occur to the Parker of the novels. Well, he, he's still operating kind of on an old, an old timey um, uh, mode of exchange. It, it's like during that the time it took him to uh, recover from his wound in the prison, wearing all his cool suits. Uh, things have shifted and he doesn't understand the rules of the game anymore yeah he understands um mo green saying i'm mo green he under he understands exactly what mo green means when he says i'm mo green and, and but of course you know the world is but he doesn't you know what um walker would not understand hyman roth because Heim, because he wouldn't understand him at all and or how that or how hyman roth operates right in fairness neither do i <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Yeah, that, that, that plot line has always befuddled me. <laughs> well, you know, it's also funny about um what you said about the ninety three thousand dollars and about what does he want it for. And earlier we talked about what's gonna do with the money. Is that the one guy who I think Brewster would understand and want to have a beer with is Ned Beatty in in um in Network, right? There are no none. There are no nations. There are no countries. There is a vast network of euro dollars and and shekels and petrodollars and all these things. And Brewster would say, "See, see, Walker, like that's what I'm talking about." Yeah. <laughs> so welcome back in part three. We always talk about the title or the ending. Much to say about both of these topics. So Eric, why don't you start us off? Well, the ending is one of the strangest endings you'll see in a mainstream Hollywood film, where suddenly uh, it seems that Walker um, is on the verge of getting his money, 
then the Carol O'Connor character Brewster is is shot. They're they're at Fort Point, which is an old uh, military fort near Alcatraz, with inside of it. And suddenly, this guy um, Fairfax um, or Yost, who has been giving Walker information throughout the film about how to find the various men that he needs to 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 see to get his money, and you think is this guy a cop? Who is this guy? Well, it turns out this guy is like the head of the organization, and he wants to all this competition killed. So he has tricked Walker into killing all of his competition. So Walker realizes that instead of threatening to overthrow the organization and get his money, he has in fact been a pawn in the game of the head of the organization. So at that moment, you see Fairfax, he's sort of down on the ground and Walker is up on one of the tiers in this old fort. He has his gun. He could shoot this man. He could go down and see if this big bag has money in it. Fairfax, Fairfax says it has money. We don't know if it does, but it might. But instead, he just fades silently into the shadows and disappears. And then the camera cuts up from Fort Point and moves over in an aerial shot to Alcatraz. And the film ends. <laughs> so there, 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 there are many theories for this ending. Uh, one is that Walker was always a, a, a ghost or a revenant, and now he's he's fading back into into the mist. Um, I, I, I tend to think that a, another way to look at it is when Walker realizes that everything he has stood for has been a joke. Um, it's almost like he says, "This identity that I've had that's turned me into such an inhuman killer." I want to be done with it. So it's almost like he fades out of, he dissolves this community, this identity. And it's almost like he sort of fades up as a spirit or a soul into the air and looks back at the place where all this began. But now he's not in the cell, he's above the cell. That's one way to think about it. Um, but that's only one, one of many. I know, Mike, you, 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 were, you were thinking about an, another idea, right? Well, I, yeah, I, I, David Thompson, I think, uh, who, I, who I really respect and who literally wrote the textbook uh, on uh, films, and uh, I think he wrote something famous about this film that I haven't read. Uh, I uh, apparently thinks that uh, it's one of those maybe he was dead the whole time, you know. And I think um, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge has maybe had a worse impact on American narrative than like the advent of cable television. But it's it's yet yet another occurrence at at Owl Creek Bridge, which I re which I really don't buy. And I what bothers me is I feel like that that cheapens the movie. Which, which it's not it's not that it's a it's a horrible gimmick in and of itself um but when you see alcatraz it's either kind of what you have in mind eric or that uh he's been in prison the whole time right he's he's gone free but is he free to enjoy the beach is he free to enjoy uh you know hanging out with his uh ex-sister-in-law Right. He's not he's not free to do anything. He's been in prison the whole time. And so when you see the aerial shot of Alcatraz, I feel like the implicit question is, is is he free? Is is he free by rejecting the money? Is it that to accept the money is in some way cheap? Is it is it that the he's learned his lesson that if you see cheese, it's always a trap. And so he can't you know, he can't go claim the money. What what is yeah. it? I, I, I mean, I think that's. I, Right on. I, I, I think this is one of those endings that can lead to two diametrically opposed interpretations, each of which is valid. And one is, yeah, he's never left that prison. And the fading into the darkness is it's almost like an annihilation of, of, of humanity. I, I, I'm, I'm entrapped, as it were, and have been entrapped. So that's what I call the sort of annihilation theory of the end. But then there's a like I suggested, there could be a transcendent theory as well that, that maybe he's, he's found a way to, to get out of this finally. 
um, to, to go beyond this world of, of getting and spending. I really like Borman not being willing, a la David Lynch, to give us any hints about how to about how to take the ending. Um, it, it's almost like we're in the same position as Walker. Like we're looking at this world and what we thought was the case or what we expected to happen is not happening. Um, and we're kind of in the same position. I think that, Mike, what you said before about Owl Creek Bridge is funny because, you know, Owl Creek Bridge is a great gimmick in the story. Like it was a great, you know, like Vladimir Nabokov said, the, the first man to compare his love to a rose was a genius and the second was an idiot. So so it, when the first time you read Occurrence in Owl Creek Bridge and you have no idea what's going on, it, it's it, it, the gimmick works 100%, right? Then when it starts, then of course, when everything becomes Scooby-Doo or it was only a dream that or a soap opera, then it, it gets really cheesy. The other reason I don't think, and I'm with you, Mike, on this is that it's, it's not an Owl Creek Bridge thing is that if you read Owl Creek Bridge, everyone remembers the ending. But what's cool about the story that Beers does is all the things that happen in his dream, in Peyton Farquhar's dream as he's as he's falling down, they're all wish fulfillment. Like he he has daring do adventures and he and he outfoxes the guards and he gets close and 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 the, the rope actually snaps when he's running up to look at his wife. So in point blank, though, if this really is a dream, it's a lousy dream. I mean, he doesn't get to, to he kills Mal dies, sure, but it's kind of like accidentally and clumsily, and he doesn't really know what's happening. He doesn't get to have the revenges, the dish best served cold, like Sherlock Holmes or something. So it's, if it is a dream, it's a lousy dream. I think it, what's funny about the ending of this is that, again, the first time viewers, people that knew the book, or certainly people that knew Lee Marvin, there had to have been a reaction of what? Like the credits come on. And now when the credits come on, the three of us are like, oh, that's such a good movie, right? But Eric, can you say something about the original reception? Because there had to be theaters full of people going like, what? Are you kidding me? What was the reception of the movie like? Well, the the, the mainstream critics, say like a Roger Egbert or a Bosley Crowther, they liked the parts of the film that were conventional. They, they liked the revenge parts. They liked the violent parts. And they tended to look at the more experimental parts like the ending and saying, I could have done without that. However, it's a pretty it's a pretty decent film. So I would say the views were kind of positive to mixed. However, a year later, uh, it's 1968 when the film came out in France, uh, the French critics did the opposite. <laughs> they, they didn't really care about the conventional Hollywood. They were talking about the new new wavy sort of thing. And, and but that gave that started giving the film a kind of uh, critical purchase that that it, that has grown over the years. The film made nine million dollars on like a two point five million dollar budget, which is not great, but not, not not terrible either. Of course, the the real problem was that Lee Marvin was competing against himself because Dirty Dozen was out the same year, and that was also the year that Bonnie and Clyde was out. So that took a lot of cultural space too when it came to thinking about violence and the, the title. We talk about the title also. We could talk about that. the title also. Of course, sets up the average moviegoer. That sounds condescending, but I'm not trying to be because I'm an average moviegoer, right? But it sets you up. You know, you have Lee Marvin. Oh, what's it called? Point blank. What's it about? A guy trying to get his money back, right? Okay. And and the film, it's, you know, the ending is not the first time where the film teases with your expectations, but it certainly teases with the biggest one you have going into a film like that. So what do you make of the title? Yeah, I, th I well, well, I was going to say, I think if you have a taste for payoffs, then this movie will frustrate you at every turn un until it's over, right? If you if you if you're the average moviegoer and you want to see the the payoff, right. you won't see it. If you have a taste for tension, you could watch this movie a yeah. hundred times because it's you know it's it's all about it's it's compelled from scene to scene by mm -hmm. I need the next thing, I need the next thing. Um, to answer your original question, then I'll pass it off to Eric. I mean, right? Point blank is where 
uh, I could, I can't miss, but I can't see much either. Right. It's like when he's right. When he shoots the bed, that's what I'm thinking about. And right. And Godard style, what, what they want to show you is not a body. That's what you'd see in any other Hollywood movie, but instead you see five holes, you know, in a blank mattress where literally the, the nozzle, the gun is, has, is so close that it's smoked the bed. Yeah. And what he sees is a big thing in some of the scenes later, because of, what do you see now? Do you see the living room? No, it's an empty room with a cat in it. And so, you know, the, the things that Walker sees and also what he what's in his memory, too, it's a big thing. You keep getting flashbacks at the beginning, of, you know, sell, I'm in a cell. And you kind of find out what's going on there. So who, what Walker sees and what we see, are, are that's an interesting tension or what we want to see, right? Because we want to see the payoff and we want to see the interrogation with Mal. And we don't get to see these things that that we've only learned to expect and see from watching other movies. Yeah, the, the whole, I mean, Borman himself said quite literally that Walker in shooting that empty bed was shooting blanks. He saw that as, as a moment of sexual failure where you know, he comes rushing in and the bed is empty. His wife's not in it. Mal's not in it. And literally bullets would not make those black spots. Uh, Borman wanted to highlight the fact that I'm, I'm he's shooting. He's not hitting anything. And then he comes back and he sits on the couch with Lynn, empties out his bullet shells and sits there um kind of post and this is all borman he's saying that so so that's one part of the point blank that that he's he's impotent strangely enough for, for all of his violent power i feel like the title captures beautifully this this kind of tension between what the studio wanted the film to be and what borman wanted the film to be yes the studio wanted us to think that this is lee marvin in a film where he's shooting a lot of people point blank um when in fact he shoots no <laughs> one um and when he does shoot he he, he doesn't hit anything uh, and, and in this regard, the studio is going you know, all the way back to 1903, The Great Train Robbery, the famous Porter film where the, where the guy like shoots at the audience at the, at the very moment. This idea of point blankness is attractive to those of us drawn to, to cinematic violence. But then there's the Borman, the more kind of literary aesthetic Borman, who's thinking all points are blank. <laughs> They're meaningless. They don't mean anything. There's a blankness to the world. And those huge Los Angeles cityscapes suggest a kind of blankness um, and the facelessness, as it were, of the, of the organization where you can't actually find a human being to pay you suggests a kind of blankness. And of course, Walker's own soul is, is blank as well. And they, there have been many movies made not around the tensions in this film, but around their satisfaction. So one, one that jumps to mind is like Death Wish, for example, right? Yeah. Death Wish strikes me as a point blank uh, if you made it, but you, you know, you, you'd never read a book, you know I mean? That's, that's the movie that that person would make, although I'm sure it has its, has its own merits. Right. But it's, it's all about that specific kind of wish fulfillment and, and characters getting what they, getting what they want, you know, but redemption being just beyond their fingertips. This is something much different. What the two of you just about the title is interesting because the source material, again, the novel is called the hunter. That's actually a more accurate title for this film right? The book should be called Point Blank because the book does deliver everything you expect. And he did so wonderfully for 25 novels and every single one, you know, every single novel is Parker's in a situation, something goes wrong, he's got to clean it up. It's stark writing. You get like, that's the fun of them. And they all have a four part structure. So you know what you're getting when you open up a Parker novel. The fun is the variations. It's like watching, a, like watching an episode of Batman in 1967 or something. You know what you're getting when you go into it, right? So The Hunter is a more accurate title because then the three of us can sit and have a conversation about how ironic the title is or for what is he hunting? And he wants to be whole again. And he wants, um, but Point Blank, of course, like you said, is, is it, that's more of a movie title. And at the end, he's it, like Lee Marvin seems to like, I don't want to be in this movie anymore. Yeah, it's 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 hard to know 
it's hard to know how to feel about this movie. When we watched Death Wish or High Plains Drifter, a, a great Clint Eastwood revenge film, we know how to feel. Uh, but this film, and this is true of some Tarantino films. I mean, you watch Say Kill Bill, you watch the the you watch uh, the the Bride yeah. kill the crazy eighty eight um, in, in Tokyo, and it's like watching Hollywood musical. I mean, that, that violence doesn't mean anything in a way. It's just kind of fun to watch, like watching Fred Astaire dance. But also it is violence at the same time. So so I think Tarantino is constantly kind of putting us in this place of I'm doing genre stuff at a very high, almost parodic level. But also there's there's a there's a gravitas to these characters as well. Um, I, obviously, Hollywood studios don't want to make films that leave people not knowing what to feel because they're not going to make that much money but but i felt that way but i still feel that way about point blank i've seen the film yeah 50 times and every time i was like do i really do i really like this film still yeah i i, I think i really love it but i, I it, it's what it, when and one could say that's what all powerful art does ultimately it kind of defamiliarizes us and makes us kind of work our way back to some sense of normalcy but we have to do that through our imagination and our mind certainly point blank makes that challenge to me every time i see it Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Point Blank. You can get Eric Wilson's BFI classic book about Point Blank anywhere you find books. It's a terrific read about a terrific movie. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a fantastic time. You could follow us on Twitter at 15MINFILM. You could also follow us where, Mike? Letterboxd. Follow us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch next, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.